0: You're listening to Privacy Files, the podcast that makes privacy approachable for businesses and consumers alike. This episode is brought to you by Anonymy Labs, makers of MySudo, the world's only all-in-one privacy app, and Sudo Platform, the cloud-based platform companies turn to for seamlessly integrating privacy solutions into their software. Welcome to episode number 26 of Privacy Files. I'm Rich. And I'm Sarah. In our last episode, Sarah and I brought you another My Pseudo Monday by diving into the topic of virtual cards with Anonymy Labs FinTech Operations Manager Dave Glass. If you missed it, you will definitely want to check it out. Today, for the first time, we are going all in on the hottest topic in privacy. Decentralized identity. Imagine a future where you own your data and not big tech. A future where you control what personal information you share with whom and for how long. Yes, it seems like quite a dream, but this reality is closer than you think. And here in our Utah studio, all the way from Australia's Gold Coast, we have one of the biggest players in the decentralized identity space, someone who's developing the standards for the game-changing technology in identity and data privacy, Dr. Paul Ashley. Welcome to Privacy Files.
1: Thanks, Rich, and thanks, Sarah, for having me today. It's a
0: pleasure to be here. Excited to have you. Yeah, this is. I'm really, really looking forward to this one because this, this topic is all over the place. and it's, it's a
2: big one, and I'm here to learn today.
0: Yeah, so before we uh, get into this too, too much, uh, I guess, in depth, Doctor, maybe you can give us a little bit of uh, your background, some of your history, and kind of how you got to this point on, on decentralized identity.
1: Sure, sure. So I've been um, in that really the security, identity, privacy space for more than 25 years now working across a bunch of different countries and, and industries. Um, and so the way we got into decentralized identity was really from the privacy aspect. Obviously we're really into into privacy and and decentralized identity to me is probably the key privacy technology for the next decade.
0: Wow, that's that's a big subject, isn't it? And I guess the the best way you've summed it up before, I think Talking uh, offline here, not on the on the uh, podcast. But you think this is a better application for blockchain technology than crypto?
1: Yeah, sure. It's a, it's really I think the ultimate blockchain um, technology. It's 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 practical. I think this is the this is the technology that will really make blockchain ubiquitous.
0: Well, I guess Sarah, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Jumping all the way in. Let's do it. Let's open up a case file on decentralized identity. So doctor, before we're getting too far into this topic, I mean, obviously it's a super fascinating one. So there's a lot of people out there have probably never heard of this topic before. I guess just to start it off, I mean, what is decentralized identity about? Is it privacy? Is it identity? Is it credentials? Is it data management? I mean, how does someone who's never heard about this before kind of start wrapping their mind around it? So the way I look at it is it's
1: actually about digital identities. Decentralized identity is really just another word for a digital identity. And, and the most important aspects of it is it's a digital identity that you can manage and control versus somebody else.
2: It's what we like to hear. <laughs> We're here for it.
0: So, I, and I guess that means the future will mean there's no passwords? That, that, that's that one. That's
1: one aspect of it. Certainly, yeah. There's there's definitely no passwords anymore. You you don't have that username password to log into systems. It's all about connecting from your wallet to a system, and so that that aspect it will be solved by this technology.
2: That's good news for people like me. Then I'm I'm all for it so far. I'm on board.
0: <laughs> let's let's do a little bit of uh, diving into the research before we drill in further to this topic. So uh, I found this uh, article. Uh, Grandview Research uh, published this new uh, research finding. They, they were saying that the global decentralized identity market size has been valued at about $650 million in 2022, and it's expected to expand at a compound annual growth rate of 90.3% from 2023 to 2020. Now, this growth of the market, they're saying, can be attributed to the increasing incidence of identity fraud across the globe. And, Sarah, in our last episode, we did talk a lot about about, identity theft and credit card fraud. Um, Now, according to the report published by the Federal Trade Commission in February of 2022, and we covered a little bit of this in our last episode, identity fraud incidents have increased by about 45% globally and decentralized identity is considered one of the most secure identity solutions that can reduce such identity fraud um, thereby driving this market over the forecast period so looking at this graph obviously the the listeners cannot see this but it's pretty much a hockey stick as you can see this this evolution of the forecast from 2020 to the year 2030 they're showing just a massive increase in adoption, and obviously the monetization of this technology. So uh, it's it's exciting to be kind of part of this kind. Of, mm. We're on the forefront, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're you're involved a lot in the standards development.
1: Yeah, certainly, and I think that I think that's actually an ac- accurate graph from what I've seen. So I've been personally working in decentralized identity for about four years. And four years ago, it was very much in its infancy. The people who were just starting to set up those blockchain networks. You, you had a network called Sovereign Network. And you started to see people starting to write standards and doing a little bit of coding and writing some open source. But it's really been the last 12 months where I've really seen it take off. And so it, it doesn't surprise me that they talk about this hockey stick because I think we're at the at the, the crest of the wave and it's really going to take off from here.
0: Yeah,
2: Awesome. Well, I guess I'm always the definitions. I bring definitions because it helps people understand, it helps me understand, especially today. So, all in all, a summary of what decentralized identity management, it's a way of managing your online identity where you, the user, have control over your own personal information rather than having it controlled by a central organization or company. And I was looking at the anonymity.com forward slash blog as well as the MySudo blog. And we have dozens of articles around decentralized identity and i didn't realize how many we had accumulated so i just found one just to sort of look at and i'm pretty sure the doctor i think you wrote it here um it was called can decentralized identity give you a greater control over your online identity and you sort of have your own definition here Um, it says decentralized identity is an approach to identity and access management or iam That seeks ways to allow individuals to manage their own personally identifiable information instead of using a central authority. An important goal of decentralized identity is to create standards that will allow Internet users to control which applications and services can have access to specific types of personal information. So this definition has really three important concepts that identity and access management user control of their personal information and standards. So I'm I'm curious to sort of start digging into this, you know, like why decentralized identity now? What's the reason for the push? And sort of like, how did we get here?
1: Can I bore you with some history?
2: I'm ready for it. Let's okay. do it. You gotta go back sometime. We've gotta go back, got go go back
1: to the late nineties. Let's and, do it. And if you think about the internet in the late nineties, it was called the identity and access management technology that you mentioned. It was, was what we call a centralized model. And, and what the identity access management means is when you go up to, say, a website, you need to be identified, and then they need to work out where they need to give you access to it. So that's the access management. And centralized is something we're all still very familiar with, even though it started back in the 90s. It's like I go to the website, it says create an account, it says create username, create password, maybe give them a mobile phone and, and a bunch of other personal data. And then you get access to that account and you get access to that, whatever the service is. And that's what they call the centralized identity and access management model for the internet. And that goes back to the nineties. Once we got into the 2000s, like in from the early 2000s up to say the early two tens, it was another technology that was developed called federated identity and access management, right? We all know it as a term called social login. This is where instead of you creating an account on a site, it would have a button that says login with Google, login with Facebook, login with Twitter. And what that really means is when you go to log into that account, what it's saying is as long as you've got the account on Twitter or, or Facebook we'll let them create a token and then we'll use that token to let you access to our site so there's no new creation of a username password and that sort of inf- that sort of information so from a user's point of view you think gee this is great i can i can get access to this new service and i haven't had to create a username and i i don't have to remember another password because i've federated from one of these providers these what they call identity providers the big problem of it is it is probably the worst solution ever designed for privacy because now if, you're, if you've are if you got, you know, 20 accounts and it's all log in from Google, guess what Google knows? Not only it knows every site that you're going to, but those sites just sh- pass information backward and forwards to each other. So, you know, as, as the site you're going to learns things about you, they pass it back to Google and Google will pass information to them. And so you've just made the whole... Um, data tracking um, problem, much, much worse. So, and that's where we are in the world now. You either go and create an account or you federate
0: to get access.
2: So that's our first tip today. Stop pushing that button. That's (laughs) sign in with Facebook. And 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 that's
0: really one of the ways, I guess, Facebook is building these more elaborate profiles on you. Correct, correct.
1: It's exactly what they want. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, they'll know a certain amount of information because you have a Facebook account, but there's lots of other things they don't know about you. So what's the best way? find out every count, every type of site you're going to, get them to pass information back. And so they can get back up to that, oh, I know 99% of the things that you know, Rich does or Sarah does. And that's why it's a really bad system from a privacy point of view.
0: And they make it so convenient. It you? is,
2: it is. You, definitely <laughs> people like me, it's the whole password thing. You're like, oh my gosh, another one I have to deal with and store in my password manager. So you look at that button and you're so tempted to click it. But you're like, please don't, please don't click that button. It's just the worst. You're just giving them more info on you. And that's I would imagine
0: they, they're selling that data too, probably to data brokers or.
1: yeah, certainly are. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. It, it, I mean, let's face it, just about everywhere you go, there's money to be made about the, da- the the transactions and the things that you're doing. Oh,
0: Wow.
2: <laughs> so um, in one of your blog articles, you stated that as a user, your view into decentralized identity is via an identity wallet. And that allows you to create your de- decentralized identities and connections with other users and services and to receive hold and present verifiable credentials. Can you tell us a bit more about that as an end user and are there examples now that are currently working?
1: Yeah, so it's it's I call it the sort of the third phase of identity and access management for the internet. If the first phase is just the centralized, and the second phase is is the federated, the third phase is really decentralized identity, which is the first centralized solution, right? It's a first centralized solution. And one of the really key innovations that decentralized identity came up with is the idea of the user having a wallet. And in that wallet, you create your digital identity and you create your cryptographic key pairs and then you connect to a site from your wallet and then the wallet can, can be a controller of when the site asks you for information and says, do you really want to provide this? Maybe you want to provide less. You know, it gives you a way of sort of not only managing a, a number of digital identities, but trying to have control over that personal data that you're passing to that site. Um, and, it, and, it, and so you no longer have username passwords, you no longer do the federated. What you do is you're connecting from your wallet to these various sites and you don't have to have password managers anymore. All you're doing is keeping that wallet that has
0: literally your access keys to get to those sites. So how would one, like maybe I don't know if this is going too far in, into detail, but if I, if I have a wallet that holds all these verifiable credentials, is it is this like the public private key encryption technology that's that I I can open up the wallet because I have that token stored on my device? Is that how that works? Or yeah, and it's 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 more than just
1: you know private public key cryptography, right? That's that's kind of the underpinnings of it as as the blockchain is as well. But really, one the the key what I call the killer app of decentralized identity is what you mentioned, what's called verifiable credentials. So let, let's, let's talk about why they are invented and why they're so important from a privacy point of view. And and let me give you a story about when I travelled to Salt Lake City. So when I travel to Salt Lake City and I, I, I come into the office and then after work I might go to a bar downtown. There's a lot of really excellent bars in Salt Lake City. <laughs> and I go to a bar and the first thing they do is they say, we need to prove that you're over 21. And I'm like, look at me, I'm over 21. Doesn't matter, we need to prove it. Show me a driver's licence. So I show the driver's licence and then all of a sudden – I'm feeling uncomfortable because on that driver's license, it not only has my birth date, it has my, you know, it has my home address on there, it has what sort of vehicles I'm allowed to drive, whether I have to drive with glasses, and there's all this other personal data I think. You know, I just all they wanna know is that I'm over 21 and I've just given them another 20 pieces of personal information, right? And it actually gets worse for me because then they say, oh, we don't accept Australian driver's license, show me your passport. And I go through the whole same procedure. What should really happen is you should be carrying an electronic version of your driver's license in what's called a verifiable credential. And I can explain why it's called that, but think of it as the digital version of your driver's license or your passport, or it could be even your gym membership or whatever. It's just a digital version. The big advantage of it is, is when you get up to that bar and it says, I need to prove that you're over 21. And they'll say, okay. I said, okay, I've got a wallet here with my driver's license. And then you connect there and and they'll put a request out to say, Can I have access to your driver's license? And you can in your wallet, you say no, but you can have my birth date for example. And so what you're doing is instead of giving 20 pieces of information, you're just giving the one piece that they need, right? And so you're controlling the amount of personal data is out there. So that bar, maybe they know that Paul turned up and they know my birth date, but that's all they know. They don't know my home address. They can't go and replicate, you know, my driver's license or something like that. So I've all, all of a sudden being able to turn up and provide less personal data about myself. So think about verifiable credentials. It's not only a way that they also have the advantage that they know that's real data. The problem, of of a course, with the plastic driver's license is you can just buy them and, and get fake ones made and and the person looking at them doesn't really know. And that's the verifiable aspect is they, they cryptographically know who issued it and whether it's been modified. But the most important thing is they can only see the data on there that you allow them to see.
0: And in in the case of so the verifier, I guess in this case, would be a bar or a club, would they they wouldn't be able to see your actual date of birth. They would just be able to see either yes or no, you were 21 or over.
1: Yeah, and that's that's a it's another, and I apologize for the technical term, it's what we call a zero-knowledge proof. Okay. That's where you can prove something without giving the data. So I can prove I'm over 21 without giving my birth date because, again, birth date in itself is a really important piece of personal data which they can use, you know, for tracking purposes. So you, there's, there's a technology called zero-knowledge proofs, which is just a cryptographic protocol, which says – they, they ask the question, are you over 21? And you can prove that you are, but you've not given your birth date away. And there's, and there's other things you can answer, like prove that you're a resident of Utah, and you can prove that without actually giving your address.
0: Is that the same concept as I hear zero trust being thrown around, which kind of sounds a little bit contradictory, but is that the same concept? Um, no, it's a different concept. It? Zero okay. knowledge proof is a different concept. But zero trust,
1: I'll tell you what zero trust is, it's saying... Your location on the network should have nothing to do with how I prove who you are. And this is why decentralized identity is actually one of the key technologies for Zero Trust because what it says is I can prove because I've got these cryptographic keys, I've got these credentials in my wallet, I can connect wherever I am in a network and they can prove at the other end it's me without, without taking into account things like location and things like that. So that's what Zero Trust is. It says you need to cryptographically prove that you're at the other end of the pipe versus some much weaker method. Wow.
2: So is it somebody just looking at something and knowing that this system exists and that this is enough proof or is it another piece of technology on the verifier side that they have to have that connects with your wallet? Yeah. Like so, so And so
1: this is where the standards come in. So okay. not only does the standards define the wallet, so it defines what a wallet is you know, what, what sort of cryptographic keys it has, what sort of function it has. And it, it, it has, you know, there's what they call these RFCs, or for comments, and it defines exactly what the wallet needs to do. It's the same for an issuer and a verifier. So the standard defines what an issuer does and what a verifier does. So they will just buy off the shelf a verifier that follows those standards. And so I should be able to, with my standards-based wallet, just connect to their standard-based verifier. And so there's going to be many um, vendors um, of issuers and verifiers and um, and those wallets.
2: It's sort of like what we talked about with virtual cards yesterday, where not everybody has the tap to pay, but that system is available. So it's almost like you would have to go to places that have that technology for you to be able to verify that way. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So the
1: bar has to get that technology. So instead of showing your card to a person, you just tap your phone on their, their reader, which would then, the, the verifier would then say, I, I need to look at your, digital driver's license or your birth date or whatever. And then in the wallet, you would say, I agree.
2: So it would be really important to have sort of this mass adoption of these verifiers. And do do we sort of foresee like that being a problem of being able to get everybody on board to say, this is a new way of verifying people safely and-
1: Well, I I, I don't think so. I think the, 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 there's, a, there's a term they also use in decentralized identity called verifiable data. One of the problems of turning up, even with a passport or a driver's license or you know, you know, when I flew over into the U.S., I have to carry my vaccine certificate. It's just a piece of paper, right? Just a piece of paper. The big problem of that is that it's unverifiable, right? I can fake them, I can make them, I can copy somebody else's. They don't really know that that vaccine certificate's mine. I just change the name on the top. And and driver's licenses are easy to fake, and even passports passports can be faked. But what can't be faked is a verifiable credential equivalent of those. So if I came over with a vaccine certificate and they could they could just say, oh, I just need to access that. And then you, sh- you give them access and then they can go, oh, that came from the Australian government and I can see what you got done. And, and, and I know that the data is correct because it's cryptographically protected that verifiable credential. And what that means is it has the right signatures and things on it that allow two things to happen, that you can confirm who created it and you confirm that it can't be changed. And it also, there's got it is another aspect to it that's really good too, which was what they call revocation. You actually know whether it's been revoked. And it's a good example with a driver's licence. So I'm carrying a plastic driver's licence. I get my driver's licence revoked for whatever reason. And I can still go around and sh- show my driver's licence. With this technology, when you go to present your driver's licence, the system would say, did you know that credential's been revoked? So they know in real time whether it's actually been revoked. Yeah. So there's a lot of things about it which I think will drive the adoption of this. And, and the fact that you you can carry data with you, and from your point of view, it's great because you can control what data you expose, but from the, the, the providers who are using it to issue and verify, they actually know that you're carrying trustworthy data. And that's a really important aspect of it.
2: So I sort of, I guess, think of like these huge companies that they thrive and they make their money based on collecting all this information. So... Do we see them having a hard time, like being like, "Yeah, we'll provide this as an option" because they they need that data. Yeah, they and so it's a really board? good
1: question: is who doesn't want this technology to take off, and it's really the data brokers, whether it's the big ones, you know, um, you know, the Googles, the Meta you know the twitter the linkedin those are the big data brokers but there's hundreds of smaller ones which want to get access to your personal data that's that's of value that they can sell into advertising and things like that so there is actually you can sense there is a pushback from that industry and we and we saw it actually with one of the standards there's this standard called decentralized identifier it's in the w3c and there was a concerted effort to try to block that standard by a, a few unnamed larger data brokers and and you know and they're saying oh but there's these technical reasons we don't want some of this stuff to move forward and but you know a lot of people were saying actually you just don't want the you just don't want the technology to move forward because all of a sudden, you put the user in control. You swing that pendulum back. So at the moment, you know we know the pendulum's over on their side of the equation. Once decentralized identity becomes ubiquitous and we have wallets and we're controlling our personal data, we have moved that privacy pendulum back more towards the user. So it is not it is it is at a disadvantage to the data broking companies.
0: And that, and that's the DIDs, right? The DID. Correct. Yeah. And that yeah.
1: standard it actually went through, finally got approved and everything. But there was pushback from some of the data brokers
2: about it. They just want me to have a better customer experience. That's why they <laughs> yeah. want my data. That we always talk about it. Yeah. But that kind of, it feels, that feels good as a user. It's sort of kind of sticking it to the man a little bit, you know, being like, no, I'm going to take my, take that control back a little bit. I like that.
0: Yeah. But what about the interoperability? Cause you know, you're, you're currently mm-hmm. working on the different standards and protocols, I guess. What can they all, will they all eventually be able to work together or there, will there be some nuances?
1: Um, it, it it's, I think the the end goal is everything works together. So when you build a wallet, and so, yeah, Anonymy Labs built a, a digital identity wallet and followed those standards, and so that should be able to interact, interoperate with any issuer or any verifier. They've also followed the standards. And to be honest, it, 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 there's a good a chance that we will get good oper, interoperability because there's a lot of also, accompanying no standard, there's a lot of open source code. So when you go and build your solution, you can use a lot of the open source code that's used by, you know, hundreds of other people, and then you say, well, we know sort of not only from a standards point of view, I'm following that, that it should interoperate, but we're actually using the same code as well. So a lot of the solutions are built under some, some of these open source code bases.
0: So it, so I guess it is the wallet kind of like, a, like an OS, like an operating system? And then the, your verifiable credentials are more like the content? Correct. That's exactly right. And, yeah. and so
1: inside your wallet, you'll have digital identities. And you say, what's a digital identif- identity? What is it? Well, it's actually just a cryptographic key pair and an identifier and things like an endpoint, like so that people can reach you, just say so they want to message you. And so that that set of data makes up what you call your digital identity. And and you can either just keep it in your wallet or if you want to make it sort of more public, then you can write it to a blockchain. And writing it to a blockchain just means that you could say to an email, you could send someone an email and say, Hey, why don't we connect with messaging? Here's my information, and just point to where the blockchain is. And they go, Oh, I see that data and it tells me the endpoint, and I know how to connect with you. And so that's one use of the blockchain. Another use of the blockchain is for, for example, the issuer. The issuer will write things like their decentralized identity they'll write things like what's the schema of the credential that we're going to publish and so if you want to know what's the what's what are the elements within the digital driver's license you can go to the blockchain see that data because the scheme is written there and so you know what you're going to receive and so you can write your applications around that
0: and, and so i guess just thinking forward here into the near future so one example i guess could be uh you're a university or a college and you're you're i guess in that case you're an issuer and you are um part of that i guess that whole trust network where somebody wants to prove that they went to a school and they have a particular degree and maybe even here's my here are my grades or my yeah, the curriculum that i studied
1: yeah and it, there's already universities that are issuing verifiable credentials and exactly for that that reason because you know you get a resume in and you're hiring someone and it says you know i went to this university and i got this degree and i got honors in that degree and and here's my transcript and and again, it's it's not verifiable data. You don't know whether this is true. And and in some cases, you know, people who, you know, want to make the effort will go back to the university and say, was this a student? Can I can I verify this? And it, and it's often really hard to do that. It's really hard to, you know, verify if someone's got a degree and they got these results and things. Whereas what, what really should happen is when you finish your degree, you should be issued a verifiable credential that says, you know, I got this engineering degree and I got it with honours. And maybe a separate credential might even have a transcript of all your results in it. And so when you, you know, when you're, working with an employee or through an agency, you can provide a verifiable credential to them and that allows them to be able to know this data is truthful.
0: So that, that could be what, rental history as it well? Could it could be anything. Be, pretty much, yeah.
1: Anywhere where you need is it, like trusted data or verifiable data is the term they use.
2: So in the wallet, you're sort of, you keep mentioning like digital identities. So as far as like my pseudo goes, we talk about that all the time. Is that sort of a good stepping stone towards where that's going?
1: Oh, it is, it is. And in fact, the, the model of, personas in my pseudo in with the pseudos exactly matches the decentralized identity concepts because in decentralized identity it also has the idea that you have multiple digital identities and each of those are for you to compartmentalize what you're doing and so this I could have in in the same way in my pseudo I might have a shopping you know persona or a shopping pseudo I could have a, a digital identity in my wallet for a persona and I could have and the digital identity there, which is the cryptographic keys, et cetera, but also could have a bunch of credentials about that. So this might be a credential that Costco issued to me or Walmart issued to me. And so, in the same way that MySudo allows you to compartmentalize those activities, the decentralized identity and the wallet is designed to do the same thing.
0: Awesome. Really and I guess the other question, kind of thinking more from a business perspective, where in this in this whole process, where is the where are the monetization opportunities? So, like in the university example, where how would how would someone make money? Would the university charge for that? It, it,
1: they could do that, but we're where often, when you have a look at the projects that are out there, where in, in a lot of ways it's about either getting better data or getting it in a, in a lower cost way. If you have a look at like a lot of the projects out there, there's usually some network, right? And, and it might be a, a network of banks or a, a network of farms, or whatever that network is, and they need to pass data between each other. and And at the moment, it's either manually with paper. You know, you know. I, I talked to someone recently who said, "Look, I I had to deal with Experian, and I had to get this these." documents and I had to get them notified and then I had to get them scanned and then I had to put them into an envelope and send them over and it was a really slow process of you know providing some evidence data right and and so the problem there is that's very expensive it takes a lot of time and all those things another way they do it is you'll see like you know, systems trying to do API calls to each other and passing data that way. And that's also a bit of a nightmare for organisations because you need to have these big growing IT departments that look after these systems that know how to do API calls between partners. And both of those systems are very slow, very expensive. They cost a lot to maintain. And a much better way is actually to take the decentralised approach, which is, I'll go to, you know, I'll go to this party that's an issuer and I'll get them to give me a credential and then I'll present it to you. So the user's becoming the way this trusted data gets from one party to another party. And not only does that save a lot of inconvenience and cost, but it's it's as I said, the user then in control of what data is being handed over. So there's a lot of benefits there as well um, in terms of cost savings. In the university case, there's actually a lot of discussion about how you pay for verifiable credentials. And there's 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 kind of a, a number of different models. So it could be that the verifier. So when you turn up at that employment agency to prove that you got the university degree, one model is that the verifier pays the issuer. So they pay they they pay the issuer, who's the university, fifty cents for use of that credential. That makes sense because if you think about that employment agency, they've now got verified data. They haven't had to have anyone try to call the university. They haven't had all those costs are gone. So why not just pay for that? Credential that they've just used. So that's what they call the verifier paying the issuer model. There's also um, other ones where you've got the, the user with the wallet might pay the issuer. So the user might pay the university a dollar to get that credential because they want that in their wallet. And so there's these different models of being able to pay the credentials. And there's another one where the verifier pays the user for um, access to that data as well. So there's these different models that have been proposed for how someone can kind of monetize that verifiable credential transfers.
0: I guess the great takeaway is is that there's no one entity that owns this process, right? That's right. You truly own your data.
1: Yeah, you do own your data and the whole process is decentralized. And I'll give you an example of a a project where we've been looking at lately is – When they went to do this project, they had all these parties, quite a few dozen parties that need to exchange data together. So there was two models that were proposed. The first was a centralized model, which is why don't we just have a big database and all the parties that effectively issue is go and write your data up there and all all the parties that want the data, you go up to the database to get the information, right? That's what they call a centralized model, all the data sitting together. Now, the big problem of that is it's totally open to abuse. Not only from you know data being stolen, personal information being stolen, but you know how you know how tempting it is for people to get access to information they shouldn't get access to. So that's the centralized model. So this this project we've been looking at decided no, why don't we go for a decentralized model? Because and, and what a decentralized model is is. Don't have any big database. Let the issuers that hold the information, pass the information to the user and to their wallet, let them pass it to the verifier. So the user's in control of the data, but there's no one place you can go where all the data is sitting and you can access. So there's a lot, a lot of security, privacy aspects to the decentralized approach, which you just don't get with the centralized approach.
2: So you mentioned um, when we were talking about the monetizing part of it, that say an employer, you know, pays 50 cents to your school to get that piece of information. Do we foresee like one big entity with lots of money to spend going out to different places to get these bits of information? Or is it just like not worth their time and money to go to these different places to get that information from about you to create that profile again?
1: Yeah, well, I, I th- it makes it much more difficult because, as okay. I said, if you go to the centralised model, you've sort of made it easy. So why why is there a, a hacking news item every week on there, you know, it, whether it's hotel chains or it's theme parks or it's credit card companies, You know, it's just like what's this week's, you know, hacking that happened? And it's because all of your personal data and all of that is centralised in one place. So, it's, you know, it's the classic honeypot for a hacker. Like it's worth me spending a month breaking in and getting that because there's just so much good data there that I can steal. And guess what I do with it? I take it down to the dark web and then I start to bid, let people bid for it and I sell it, right? That's the classic model. When you've got a more of a decentralized approach and the data is coming from one entity to the user and the user's releasing it, it makes it a much more difficult proposition. Like, you you know, what do I need to do? Do I need to find out that Sarah's got a wallet and I've got to try to hack her wallet because all her data is sitting in these set of credentials in her wallet that's a pretty hard, not only is the h- pretty hard, but it's not very attractive because I might need to spend a month and all I do is get Sarah's data. So it's like it, it the decentralized approach is much less attractive for hackers and also just for data brokers when exploiting data.
0: So I could, in the future, would you be able to log into a social media account using your digital wallet that,
1: that's what that's what i see the way i so see this going in yeah. the
0: future is
1: you know when you go up to like just say you, you want to create an account on a new system right and the, you know the first one it'll say create a username password or they might say you know log in with google and a third option will come in use your decentralized identity to log in and what that means is if you select that option is they just just putting a qr code and your wallet so your wallet um, users, it, wallets are usually on mobiles and so you've got a camera you scan that QR code and what that is is what's called an invitation request and that allows your wallet to make a connection with that site and think of that connection as I've now created an account I actually have a relationship now with that site and the site might say oh I need some information with from you and you might give them some information what they need again you get to control it because the wallet will say they've just asked for this information you'll say no you've asked for five pieces I think you only need two I'll just give you two you know, so the, the user's in total control of what they pass over there. But think of an account as a connection between your wallet and that um, and that site, that website, and you can go back there any time. The way you go back, rather than logging in again with logging with Google or putting a username and password in, all you do is scan a, a reconnect um, QR
0: code and you're immediately logged in effectively. So that the QR code's generated by the verifier? That's right. They're the verifier.
1: They're the verifier. They they actually might be an issue as well, because let's say that was Costco, right? And and you're going onto the Costco website, and let's say they've done this, and they might say, look, I just need you to prove your identity, and you can prove some information because you've got a driver's license in there. But they might say, okay, now here's your Costco membership credential. Hold that, and then you can use it for them, or you might be able to use it in a whole lot of other places as well that gives you discounts because you're at a Costco membership, say. So, there's you know, sites will become both verifiers of data you have and also issuers of new credentials.
2: I wonder from like a social, you brought up social media, what their incentive would be to even give you that option. Like they almost seem like the ones that would be pushing back pretty hard on not even wanting to present you with that option because they they are making their money off your information. And so if they're giving you that option to not give that to them you're sort of like a lost customer, I guess, in a sense of your data yeah. That, yeah. That they can't you're take still, from you. You're
1: still a customer, but you're a customer that's giving the information you choose to give to them. Like if, if, you've, if you've, as I said, like if you've done a, instead of using a decentralized identity login and you've done that federated login, that you know, social login or logging with Google, what, what you know there is that there's plenty of data passing about you in the system, right? In this case, guess what? They don't have access to that. All they have is you at the other end with a wallet who's deciding what information to pass over.
2: Yeah. I totally get it from my end. Cause I'm like, I want to be able to protect that, but I don't see like Instagram and Facebook being like, yeah, we want to give you that option. I think, the, I, I feel like they'll be the ones pushing back. I, I think you're hundred
1: yeah. percent right. But you know, it's, it's one of these competitive things is once you've got a wallet and you've been doing this and you're saying, boy, this is an easy way for login. this is an easy way for me to control my data, there's going to be competitive pressure on those organizations to conform and allow you to log in with that same technology. That's just going to happen.
0: What, nice. what, what do you, in terms of um, use cases, what, what do you think are kind of the top three or five right now that are being talked about?
1: Oh, there, there is a number. Like there's, as I said, I'd say around the world, there's there's hundreds of decentralized identity projects going on in, in, in a bunch of different areas. Um, one is healthcare. Surprisingly, healthcare is one of the areas where they say, well, I need to get some data from, say, my doctor to this specialist that I'm visiting, right? How do I get that data there? And we know how usually they print out information or they pass it in email between them or something. Why not when I'm in the doctor's office, why not give me a credential and then I carry it and just and, and then you can present that to the specialist and they get some information about your medical history. So that's that's one example. Um, and, and the examples are those kind of network things where you think about a healthcare system is a, is a network of operators, of hospitals and specialists and, and doctors, and there's information that needs to be passed between them. But it's not only information that needs to be passed, but it really needs to be trusted and verifiable data.
0: What, what about... Um the cost, I guess, uh, is, what kind of an investment would it take for a, a verifier to get plugged into this type of a system?
1: Well, it's actually fairly simple. Um, it's a, quite simple to do it. It's verifier software. It's just off-the-shelf software, right? You just need a provider, and uh, Anonymy Labs provides a verifier. We have an issuer and a verifier that we can provide, and, and we can run in the cloud because we're a SaaS provider, and what, what that means is okay, they've got the verifier software. They just, they need to do a little bit of application work because they need to be able to run that verifier. So for example, you need to tell it what information to ask the user for. There's a little bit of application work to be done, but it's not a big load for an organization to become a verifier or an issuer because all of the technology is in the issuer software and the verifier software. Think of it, you just need to be able to control the issuer and verifier software. So there's a little bit of work to do around that. But it's actually not a big burden to become an issuer or a verifier. And for a user, it's just I need to get a wallet. And there's a number of different wallets out there. So it's it's not a big burden for the user either. Uh,
0: so, so in the case of an issuer, if I'm a rental car company like Hertz and I have the issuer software, I would be in charge of creating what the schema looks like? Am I using no, the no. terminology correctly?
1: It, it's more the issuer. The issuer defines the schema because okay. the schema is what's in the credential. So the issuer creates... So a DMV, so let's say it's Utah DMV, and they want to create a digital driver's license for you. They define the schema, which means what are the elements in that driver's license. What the verifier does is they go to the blockchain to read the schema to see what the issuer's public key is. This is where the cryptographic stuff comes in. And what the verifier can do is they can go, oh, I can see what information's available to me. What what will I ask the user for on that driver's license? And so it's kind of almost like configuration. I need to I need to tell the verifier what question to ask. And the verifier, like just say it's a, a car rental place, the, the first question they might ask is, can I see your driver's license or prove that you've got a driver's license? And so you're just configuring the verifier to ask that question to the wallet. And so the wallet connects to the verifier. They ask the question, can I see your driver's license or some part of it? And it comes up in the user's wallet and they'll say, you know, Hertz rental cars just ask for your driver's license. Are you okay to provide that? And then you say yes, and that information goes over. And again, the rental car company is in a great position because they know that is verifiable data. They know that that's a real driver's license. They know who issued it. They know it hasn't been changed. And they even know if it's been revoked. So they're in a great position to be able
0: to use that as well. I would imagine in a case like the car rental, then if, if you can do that ahead of time, you could just show up to the car rental facility, not even talk to a human.
1: Yeah, It's 100% right. Pick up the keys and go. Everything that you do, You know, when you go to the desk of a rental car and there's a person there and you're showing your physical driver's license, there's no reason you can't be sitting at home, go onto the rental car website, connect there, prove, you know, make a car order. And at the same time, do a connection from your wallet to their verifier. They can ask the question for your driver's license, you can present it. And you could be just sitting at home doing this. And so you're right. And then you just turn up and the car can be waiting for you and you just drive off with it. So there's a lot of of benefits of doing this. You don't have to be in person, you know, holding your phone there because you can do it remotely with your phone to a website.
0: What about the security of this technology? We could start getting into the, put the half tinfoil hat on Ten. just in case because there's some that have a little bit of concern too about this. So this,
1: course. I would say as a technology, this is extremely well designed. So it's been, you know, we I'm saying now we're at the point of getting projects into production and doing all those things, but there's really a decade of work that's happened before that in terms of defining standards, including the cryptographic standards. And it's been a lot of work. So I would say from my point of view, and, and as I said, I'm from a security and privacy background the last 25 years. I've, I've I've rarely ever seen a technology that's been so thoughtfully designed as this from both a security and a privacy point of view.
0: I know um, the Canadian government is trying to push for this digital identity thing. And there's been a small group of people in the tinfoil hat community that kind of get worried because I, I guess it comes down to the, the concern always becomes like who is who really, it. who's running yeah, all. Yeah. And,
1: and it all. Yeah, correct. And there are two schools of thought. So if I put my tinfoil hat on as well. Yeah. Welcome. There, there's, there's two there's two schools of thought, right? And in, in the industry, when, you, when you're talking, when you're going to conferences and things and people who are in the identity space, there's two schools of thought around it. And the first is that you should have one digital identity, right? It should be maybe issued by the government. And then you should use it for everything, when you're renting a car and when you're going on social media and when I'm doing everything, I should use that because that just makes sense and it's tied to your legal identity. And there's there's, there's a, and I'm not saying it makes sense from my point of view, I'm just saying there is a community of people in the identity industry that believe that is the way the world should work. There's the other school of thought, and this is the, the school of thought that I come from, which is... No, you should have multiple digital identities. You should be able to compartmentalise what you do. You should be able to have maybe one of those digital identities that represents that legal. So when I'm renting a car, I have to show a driver's licence. When I'm travelling through an airport, I have to show a digital passport. And so that's sort of your legal identity. But you might have just the same as my pseudo. You might have a bunch of other personas, in which case I don't want the different compartments to know about the other compartments. So if I'm doing shopping, I want to keep all that interactions totally separate from if I'm researching healthcare and stuff. And so my my view on it, and it, it that's why I said it really follows the my pseudo approach is a user should have multiple digital identities. They should use them as they want. They should dispose of them when they want to, and they should use them in the in the in the times when they want to use them and keep them separated and and it gives you that whole ability I'm in control and I'm much more less traceable across the internet. So, so you do have to be careful. It's like, you know, tech, technology can be used for good and, and for bad. So decentralised identity can be used for bad. If you said the only decentralised identity allowed is one issued by a government and that's all you're allowed to have and all your credentials attached to that and all your interactions attached to that, I would say that's a very bad use of decentralized identity or digital identity. I think it's much more that a user should create those digital identities and use them in situations that they want to use them in and have complete control over them. That's the good use of the technology.
0: Now, now is decentralized identity, is that considered part of web three? Loosely? Wow, that's a that's a that's a that's a good a, question. Yeah. And,
1: and can you bear with me and I'll talk a little bit about sure, web yeah. two, web yeah, three, sure, and, no problem,
0: yeah. And and now there's web five.
1: But if you look at the internet before blockchains. We, that's what we would call the Web2 world, right? And it's it's very centralised. You know, as I said, you go, to a, you go to log into a site, they have your identity and access management stuff and they also have the application and they have all your data. It's very centralised. And if you look at the internet, it's actually become more and more centralised. You've got more and more of these big players that have information on more and more people. And that's the Web2 world. Now, the Web3 world, I would say, really started at the advent of the blockchain. Because the blockchain is a totally different paradigm. It says, well, the, what we have is literally this distributed network of computers. Those computers can run applications and they can hold data, but there's not this sort of centralized place where it all is. And, and once that blockchain was invented, then you started to see the Web3 use of it, like crypto, cryptocurrencies, NFTs. You know what they call decentralized apps or DApps. All of that stuff—that's what I call the Web Three world, and and that's trying to move away from the centralized world, right? And that's 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 the decentralized world. And there's a whole Web Three world out there. It unfortunately over the last few years, obviously, it's it's got a real black eye because we've seen a lot of problems, especially with cryptocurrencies. You know, we recently yes. saw FTX and the problems there, and and all the fraud now. That, that that was more of a human problem than it was a technology problem. Like there's there's nothing wrong with crypto um, you know cryptocurrencies and using them and they do have utility and use, but the big problem is that, that whole Web three area has is, 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 you know, had a black eye and's got a bad name now because of these bad players in the industry that have yeah. you know used it as a way of exploiting money from people. Sure. Right? So that's the Web three world. Now, decentralised identity, the only real overlap with the Web3 world is the fact that it also uses a blockchain or a ledger technology. That's the only use because... In the decentralized at any world, you do have this blockchain underneath, which is what they call the system of trust, which is it's a thing where you put things like public keys. I put my endpoints. I talked about before that you can create an identity in your wallet and you can write it to the blockchain so people can look on it and get access to it. So there is a blockchain involved and, and, and verifiers use the blockchain to know who the issuers are and what their public keys are and things like that. So it does, that's the overlap. But Jack Dorsey, um, who is the creator of um, Twitter, and he's now, I think, the CEO of Block, he, I think it was about six to 12 months ago, he came out and he said, look, decentralized identity is really a Web 5 technology. It's not a Web 3 technology. We shouldn't be putting in the basket of Web 3. I think it should be called Web 5. And the reason he called it Web 5 is he says it helps both the Web 2 world and the Web 3 world. It can be used both in that the current world we have, plus the decentralized world, so I'd like to call it Web Five, and and it's and and it's not really a cryptographic currency, and it's not an NFT, and it's not a strength app. It's a identity system. It's an identity system, something new. And so he he came out and said, "Look, we've got to start calling it Web Five. Let's separate it from Web Two to Web Three, and Web Five is all about decentralized identity, which is all about identity and credentials and verified data and all those things."
0: Yeah. How close do you think, or how far away are we from this whole? I guess, industry and market just really exploding? Oh, I think we're right on the verge of it. Like
1: I've really noticed the last year that all of a sudden it's got to a point of maturity both from standards and actual code and, and implementations. As I said, like, you know, from a Non-Labs point of view, we built a wallet, you know, we have an issuer, we have a verifier, and we can deploy those very easy for customers, right? So I think we've got a point where, it's actually real now. We can put stuff into production and those projects. Now it's really up to industries to say, how can I use this technology? How will it benefit me? How will it benefit my customers? So there's, there's the, the kind of the, the development phase I think is done in which, the, you know, there's, there's a lot of standards work, a lot of software developed. It's now about projects being implemented and put into production and then seeing the reduction in costs or the improved behaviours for users and things like that. So I, I really think we're at that cusp right now.
2: So you mentioned healthcare as being a scenario um, for decentralized uh, technology. Do you have any other scenarios that are being looked at?
1: Yeah, I I would say the number one scenario out there in the world is actually travel. And, And so I've seen, you know, as I said, digital passports, digital visas, digital vaccine certificates, all carried as verified credentials in a wallet for a user that they can take from country to country. So I guess it's at the trial stage, but it's it's a great example because if you think about, as I said, you know, I just carried in and I've got a I've got a folder full of you know printouts of things that I need to prove and as I said that's unverifiable data. So in the travel industry, it's a great place to put um, decentralised identity the and these verifiable credentials because you're now taking trusted information across borders and they can see oh this this digital password was issued by the Australian government. I can see when it started. And I can see it hasn't been revoked and I know the data's got a good integrity and all that. So travel is a really big one. Um, Driver's license is another big one. You're starting to see a number of driver's license projects around the world where, you know, like DMVs, like DMV California, um, Salt Lake City, a bunch of these DMVs are now experimenting with giving you digital versions of the driver's license. So that's a really uh, popular one. Another one that's maybe a little surprising is it's very big in the ticket industry, you know, when you're buying concert tickets and things like that. So because you think about, you know, you go and buy concert tickets, what do you do? Do you print out a piece of paper, you know, where they scan barcodes and I've got to remember to carry it. It's all it's all pretty clunky at the moment, right? How about I can go onto a, you know, a ticket site and buy my ticket and immediately I can connect to it and be issued my ticket as a credential into my wallet All I got to do is have my phone with me and then I turn up the gate and present that credential. So ticketing is a big one. Um, and certifications is a big one as well. So there's a number of industries that have a lot of certification. The building industry is one of those where I have to be certified as a plumber or electrician, and there's all sorts of different certifications. In the farming industry, there's things like, you know, organic certifications, and it might be, you know, what sort of fertilizer I use and things like that. So there's certifications that you can use in that industry. So it's anywhere where you need this verifiable data to be passed between, you know, one entity to you to another entity. So there's quite a lot of those. And if you think about, you know, the ticket example, it's perfect because I buy a ticket off one company, I then carried my wallet and then I present it at the stadium, which could be run by a different company. So it's very, very good way of getting high integrity data.
2: For me, what it'll come down to is trust in who owns that. You know, it's like we said, you mentioned people probably have less trust when it's the government that wants to give me this digital identity, but trusting the companies. You said there's hundreds of projects going on. So it's, Mm. I guess, going to be about sort of vetting those companies that we trust the most for me to be building this digital identity with, because I just sort of look at like, I think there was probably a a decent amount of pushback with vaccine passports when those came Mm. out. People were just, it was new. We were unsure of, well, who's got this information? What are they going to do? you know, Is all of my medical information tied to this? They were unsure about it. And I think that's what I just worry about. It all being in one place and somebody shutting me down if they don't like something that I'm doing. And so I think it'll be about building that trust. You mentioned compartmentalization will be important to sort of divvy that up a little bit. But yeah, trusting who who's building it and who owns all of it, I guess.
0: Because there, there's still a level of data trail, I guess. Because when you're talking about the the compartmentalization of digital you know, identities, there's I guess that still assumes that there is some kind of data exhaust that does take well, place in this process. And, and
1: and I think that's true because when yeah. you're dealing with a site that you do have to sometimes give personal information for whatever it is, you know, the rent, rental car company, I have to they have to know I've got a driver's license, they have to know who issued it and things like that. So there is an amount of data there, but but let's take that government example. I think the government's place in this is as an issuer or a verifier of a credential. So the government there's nothing wrong with, you know, the, the government, you know, in Utah who runs the DMV for issuing you a digital driver's license. There's nothing wrong with, you know, the passport office giving you a digital passport. I think that's right. So government play has a place in it, but government shouldn't own the digital identity. You should own the digital identity. And it just happens that they happen to issue those credentials and you have other credentials. And so they're just a player just like everybody else. Where I get uncomfortable is if the, the government wants to be the owner and controller of that digital identity. Then I think it falls right. down.
0: I guess the, the only other thing that's still a little bit unclear to me is if I've got a wallet on my phone and let's say I I need I need to get the verifiable credential for my academic record in higher education, What I, I guess roughly what would that process look like? I, all of that is taking place inside this app that I have on my phone? Yeah, it, it should be pretty simple.
1: So let's say you're graduating, right? They should just have a system there that's an issuer. And you should be able to go up there and just, you know, you're getting your paper certificate. You know, we all get the paper certificates. At the same in somewhere in that process, they should say, bring your phone up to the reader here. I'm going to issue you the digital version. It should be as simple as that. Same with the driver's license. You might still go into the DMV office and they might say, okay, here's a plastic one for people who want a plastic one. But by the way, if you bring your phone over here and give you the digital one, and then you've got both, you've got both a plastic one and a digital one. So it just needs to be sort of a a slight change to processes where they're giving you kind of physical things and say, well, we can give you a physical thing still, but why don't we give you the digital one? Because the digital one's actually a lot better.
2: And I guess to your question, is it sort of like a, like a pseudo app? Like, is it an actual app or is it just sort of all encompassed on my device?
1: It's a, it's an app. It's a, a, the wallet is an app just like my pseudo is an app. And, um, and, and, the wallet is actually the function. The function might be within MySudo, for example. You could put it into MySudo as just another function or it could be a standalone wallet app that, that, that does that and might even do other things as well. So it's, it is an app that you would install. So you know, you'd know you go to the App Store and install it on your iOS device. You'd go to the Play Store, install it on your Android phone. And it's just an app that provides the capabilities and has been built against those standards so it knows how to interact with these other other parties in the system.
2: Are there any like security concerns if I lose my phone, or you know, I drop it in the water and I can't access yeah. it, or somebody hacks into my device? Is there so, what so, about that?
1: So just like any other application on your phone, you should back it up, right? And so what what actually happens if you look at the way if you build these wallets properly is you encrypt the data on the in the app and it's only decrypted as it's used. And so what you do is when it when it's sitting on your phone, it should be backed up just like your other apps right so it could be backed up you know we use the ios example you could you could back it up to the cloud or you could back it up to your laptop or whatever there's various ways of backing up so it has to be backed up in the same way um because yeah it's it's just think of it as an app with some data in it it's just the data in there is digital identities that have these verifiable credentials stored in there as well so you don't want to lose the data because it's kind of inconvenient to go back and get you know Right. Yeah. Because like,
2: I think of like working in support, we get people all the time that are like, I had to get a new phone or my phone got wiped and I didn't back it up. So if, if somebody doesn't back up their phone and they just had everything in there, do they sort of have to start over and go get those certifications again and turn yeah, so, those things so again?
1: So I think if you're that type of user, then you should get a wallet that already has its own backup mechanism. So So one of the things they talk about different capabilities of wallets. One capability is it's just standalone on that mobile phone, right? It's just standalone and because I've got my tinfoil hat, I don't trust the cloud and I want to back it up to my laptop. That's one way. Another way is one of the, 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 the standard features of a wallet is there's a backup service to a cloud so it'll back up your wallet to a cloud. If you want to, if you're that type of person that is likely to lose it and not back it up, then just get a wallet that has a cloud backup as part of that. And then there's other scenarios like I wanted to across multiple devices that I want on my iPad and on my iPhone, and I need to be able to support that wallet in a number of places. So there's these capabilities of just having a file on a on a, a mobile device, yeah. Got it.
0: Now, I would imagine as some people are listening to this, there's some out there clamoring for when is this technology available, right? Yes. Are we getting close for uh, you know some kind of a rollout or some test case, I guess? Yeah.
1: At the moment, I'd say where it is. It's not. It's sort of not in the general public yet. What it is, it's mainly, as I said, it, it's kind of like networks of systems, like a travel system or a farm system or a health healthcare system. And people in there have the wallets and they have issuers and verifiers. So it's kind of more in a system. So if you're in that healthcare system and they've implemented it, then they'll give you a wallet and you'll start using it in that system. It, it, it hasn't sort of got that general use where I just have a general wallet and I can use it anywhere. It's more there's groups of organizations that are putting these systems in place. And if you happen to be part of one of those, then you'll you'll naturally get a wallet and, and start interacting in that way. But I think I don't think it'll be too long before, you know, you start to have a, a wallet that you're using in this system for healthcare and I'm using it for travel. And I'm using it for my driver's license and I'm using it for the tickets and things like that.
0: Yeah. It sounds like there's a lot of work that's been done though. There
1: has been a lot of work, and, um, and now it's, it's, it, it'll take time to roll this out into different industries and things. So, but there's it's, it's a great lot of opportunity there, and there's a lot of benefits, particularly for users, for security and privacy, but there's also a lot of benefits to the organizations you're dealing with as well.
0: Ooh, this was quite a topic.
2: <laughs> That's a lot. How are you feeling? I'm good. I feel way better about it, my understanding of it. I think you did a great job at explaining it. So hopefully anybody listening feels like they learned something as well.
0: Yeah, this was this was uh, this is definitely cool. It's exciting, that's for sure. Yeah, you, this is truly a new to the world technology. It is. I guess is. as we wrap this up, uh, anything else, Doctor, you would like to talk about or kind of recap or underscore about this whole technology?
1: No, I just I would just probably repeat what I said really early, which is I think this is a key technology for privacy for the next decade, right? And and some people will come of it. From a privacy point of view, other people come from a security point of view. Other will come from a data quality point of view. But to me, the and, and the reason Anonymy Labs got interested in it was from that privacy aspect because it's being built as a privacy system to give you better control. And so, I think if 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 you're interested in that, then this is a sort of technology you should start to maybe start to read. As, as Sarah said, we you know we've got a number of white papers and blogs on this topic, and just start to get familiar with it. And so, when you see it appear, you can go. Oh, I know what that is. And actually I can trust that because I kind of understand the background of it.
0: Yeah. Wow.
2: Yeah. I think that's what's important is just get, get familiar with it, understand it, read about it. So it's not so scary and daunting. <laughs> that's what I <laughs> felt like, but hearing it and reading about it, definitely you, feel more comfortable.
0: You look better. You have more color in your face. now.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I've relaxed a little bit.
0: <laughs> well, I guess. Yeah. Thanks to Dr. Paul Ashley. Yeah, thanks for coming who, again as the CTO here at Anonymy labs. And, uh, uh, I would like to say that he did get on the airplane to come all the way over here just for this, but there's other <laughs> stuff going on too. I'll do
1: a couple of other things while I'm here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, yeah, once again, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. This is super informative and I, I guarantee the audience is going to, they're going to eat this up. It's, it's great information. It's exciting and uh, wow, new technology.
1: And thank you for having me on to talk about it. It's my favorite topic at the moment. Cool.
0: Well, that's going to do it for this episode. In our next episode, Mr. Metaverse will be back as guest co-host on Privacy Files, as the two of us will be looking at the emerging science of using open source intelligence for surveillance and even predicting the future. Until next time, don't forget, privacy is a human right.